0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: Hey there, it's Mary. And if you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, you are probably asking yourself, what's going on over at Only Human? And the answer to that is kind of a lot, actually. It's just that most of the stuff the team's been doing has been popping up on other podcasts, like On the Media and Lab, or in the episode I'm about to play for you, a brand new WNYC podcast called Caught. It's about kids in the juvenile justice system. Yeah, I managed to find a health angle on that one. But before we get to that, one more thing, because the team has a couple of projects we're launching in the coming months that we are so excited about. First up, a podcast series we're calling Aftermath, all about this video of a police shooting you might've seen a couple years back. The people caught on tape that day expose the darkest corners of America's disability system. Then stay tuned for a summer series about a hip hop icon. We'll tell you how a desperately sick kid rose to become a legendary rapper, but still couldn't escape one recessive gene. If you want to be the first person to hear about all this great stuff, there's an easy way to make sure that happens. Go to onlyhuman.org and subscribe to our newsletter, You can do that by clicking the little button on the right-hand side of your screen where it says, about the show. And while you're doing that, here's that episode of Caught. Talk to you soon.
2: In one instant, everything can change. You make a choice and just like that, you've lit a fire. Sometimes one you can't control. These kinds of turning points are in pretty much all the stories we've told in this series. Remember Honor, back in episode four? He grabbed that knife, and in a flash, his life changed forever. Or Z, when he and his friends walked into that convenience store to commit an armed robbery, they made a choice they just couldn't take back. And these decision points, they're also a huge deal in the broader story of juvenile justice right now, and particularly of reform. I'm Kai Wright, and this is Caught. We've begun to understand that our brains handle split-second decisions very differently when we're young. And that knowledge, it has changed the legal debate around juvenile justice. WNYC's health guru,
1: Mary Harris, has been thinking a lot about that change. Hey, Mary. Hey, everyone. So, Kai, I have a test for you. Okay. Okay, this is a test of the brain. Here's how it works. You're going to sit in front of this computer screen. Okay. Okay. And you see a little red plus sign. I see that. It's in the center of the screen. Right in the middle. Uh Uh-huh. It's just kind of, it's like giving you a place to focus. Okay. I'm focused on it. I'm looking. Okay. Now, here's what's about to happen. It's going to go away. And then you see a pinpoint of light appear somewhere in your peripheral vision. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I
2: see it. It's right there. It's off to the right, like a little speck.
1: Right. So here's the test. The only thing you have to do when that light appears is look away from it.
2: That's it. Just don't look at it.
1: That is it. Okay, here's that first image.
2: Okay, I see the red plus sign, and it's gone. And there's the second light. Yeah, look away. I did it, I did it. Okay, and just what is all of that measuring?
1: Let me introduce you to one of the foremost experts on the importance of this test. Her name is Bia Luna. She's a neuroscientist at the University of Pittsburgh. Hi, Mary, how are you? I called her up when I read about this test.
3: I did not invent it. It's been around for
1: a while. She says this is measuring something called saccades. S-A-C-C-A-D-E. And saccade means eye movement. And um,
3: the eye movement to, like, a visual target is the quickest motor
1: movement that your brain can do. And because the movements are so fast, you can't fake the results. These eye movement tasks, adolescents, they are not good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens when teenagers take these tests?
1: Luna says this is where it gets really interesting.
2: What we see that adolescents do
3: like maybe 30-something percent of the time, is that they look at the light and then they turn the other way. They're like, oh,
1: shoot, and they turn the other way. Teenagers are basically unpredictable. They can do this right, but they mess up. And that's very compelling because it's saying, I knew exactly what you wanted me to do.
3: But my brain, you know, it, I couldn't stop it in time. You know, I couldn't have the executive part of my brain that's
1: saying, you know what, you know what you have to do, Just don't look at that freaking light. So what she's talking about here, the executive part of your brain, when that's working, it's a sign your brain is mature.
2: The executive brain, that I get, I understand.
1: Yeah, and the teenage brain is really not there yet. Actually, tests like this one show that our brains don't really mature until we're in our 20s. And the doctor with his eye movement test, as crazy as it sounds, she ends up being weirdly important in changing how courts treat juvenile offenders in this country. Because when lawyers learned about this science, they made it part of their argument that juvenile offenders are different and should be treated differently. Different punishments, shorter sentences. We've
2: talked a lot in this series about smaller piecemeal fixes, and those are important. But the story Mary is about to tell us is about a real chance to chip away at the mass incarceration that
1: starts so young. And it's about thousands of people getting a second chance. Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? I'm talking about people like this. Yep. Okay, this is a 26-year-old named Stephen Hall. Tell me what you had for breakfast this morning, just so I can, I can hear how you sound. Stephen was just 17 when he was arrested for second-degree murder in rural Pennsylvania.
3: We had farina and a blueberry muffin, surprisingly.
1: Is that, like, a good thing?
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I haven't had a blueberry muffin in probably about nine years.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, life as I know it. He's been sentenced to life. No parole. He's been in for nine years. For now, he's trying to make the most of his time inside. So just so it's clear, in the background, is that one of your dogs you're looking after? Huh? Is that one of your dogs?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He's gotten pretty good at training dogs for the disabled. What kind of dog is it?
3: It's a uh, pure red Labrador, trained to be service dogs. Roll oh, come.
1: Stephen ended up here after a night with some friends went very, very wrong.
3: Let's see here. <laughs> How do I start that one now? I mean, I guess I was, I was just like any other teenager. I mean, I just. I just got caught up with a, a bad group of people that I probably should have thought better of being with.
1: But, it started with some drugs. I was,
3: I was passed out. I was high on heroin and I was drinking. So I was pretty much comatose in my chair. Passed out.
1: Which is when his friend, a guy named RJ, woke him up and said, I've got this idea. Let's go for a ride.
3: Usually that just means we're going to go ride around and smoke some weed, maybe shoot off of some deer or something we see on the side of the road. Doesn't mean. Doesn't mean what happened.
1: This one decision to jump in a car, go for a ride—it's the moment when everything changed for Stephen. I tracked down this old police tape from when he was arrested back in 2008.
3: Okay, just uh, we started the recording, um, just so we know who all was in the room. I'm Trooper Greg Raybuck. I'm with Trooper Tim Whitman.
1: Stephen had just turned 17 at the time. And his parents are actually with him for this interrogation.
3: Gail Hall, Hall, Rhonda Hall, which are parents to Stephen Hall. Yeah. It is October 15th at um, about 5 after 2 p.m.
1: You can hear how young Stephen sounds, also how trusting he and his parents are, as the police read Stephen his rights.
3: Having the rights in mind, do you agree to answer questions today? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I told him do as much as I can.
1: The police had been investigating the death of a man named Tim Finucane for a couple of months by the time they got to Stephen. They'd traced the fatal shot to Stephen's gun.
3: I mean, I, I told you guys, I told you and the other guy. <laughs> I, I
0: explained to you last night that the bricks were starting to fall and they were all going to come crumbling down. Yeah. That's what happened between last night and today. Uh, all the evidence we've got, we know that you
2: were there. So that's where we need to
3: start. Was you there? Yeah. Why didn't you
1: tell us last night, Stephen? Because I was
3: scared. Rightfully so. But you need to take the step in the right direction.
1: Stephen knew he'd been caught. So he tells the police how the night started out, was shooting at deer, drinking. And then his friend R.J. got the idea to drive deeper into the Allegheny National Forest and rob Tim Finucane.
3: Why did he tell you he wanted to go to that place again? Money. Money? Yeah. He said that the guy, he he worked on the guy's house before with Leonard, and he paid in big wads of cash, so he figured he had tons of money on him. Okay. I mean, like I said, if if I found out he would have killed the guy, I wouldn't even, I would have jumped out the car.
1: Talking to him on the phone almost a decade later, Stephen still seems surprised by what happened in those woods.
3: Yeah, when we, when we went for the ride, we just pulled up in this driveway and he was like, yeah, I fixed fixed up this guy's house with my girlfriend's grandpa or whatever. He's like, I know we got some, some pills in here.
1: This part of Pennsylvania has more in common with Appalachia than Philadelphia. There's a herd of elk here and lots of deer. Lots of guns, too, which is why Stephen had his in the car.
3: Not through that truck figure out, you mean, oh, somebody must be here. We devise a quick little plan to go ahead and have me get the guy out of the house, fake an injury, walk him down the driveway, because the driveway's probably like at least 50 yards. And by that time, RJ should be in the house, get what he needs to get, and be out by the time the guy gets back to the house.
1: Stephen went to the front door to get Tim Finucane outside. RJ grabbed the gun and waited to slip inside the house. Steven was walking Finucane down the driveway when he heard a shotgun blast.
3: When I heard that first shot go off, I pretty much just stopped dead in my tracks because like the first thing went to my mind, I mean, I was high and all, but like as soon as something like that happened, like the whole high went away. I wasn't high no more. I was completely sober. Like that shit just put me into a stage of high alert pretty much. And I just, I froze my tracks and just started looking around like what the fuck's going on right now?
1: Steven didn't know why R.J. shot Tim Finucane, but he knew he was in the line of fire.
3: He, he was visible to me. I seen, I seen him get hit. It didn't look like he got hit. Like he stayed on his feet and everything. He kept walking. Like I saw like a little bit of a jerk, but I never imagined it. Like you see, I shit in movies all the time, and you think like it's nothing. But when you actually see it, it's, I was a little shaky, I guess. But then when I heard the second shot, I heard like a kind of a a grunt or gurgle type noise and that's I don't know I've been trying to forget that ever since that happened and uh I took off running in the woods
1: how far did you run?
3: I don't even know I really don't I ran into the woods I started running in trees and tripping over tripping over barbed wire and bushes and shit (laughs) and I finally came out what felt like hours later but it was probably about like maybe like half an hour later finally found my way to the road and just started walking back to my friend's house
1: Tim Finucane lay in his driveway until the next day, when a neighbor found him.
3: Kind of have a hard time like replaying it in my mind, like scene for scene, but there'll be times where I'll get like little tidbits that pop in my head of what happened at this time or what happened this time, things like that. Whenever it first happened, that shit played in my head while I was sleeping over and over and over again, you know, like a freaking nightmare.
1: Steven didn't tell his parents what had happened. The first time they heard this story was when they were sitting with Stephen in that interrogation room, audio tape rolling, and he was confessing.
0: Okay. And then he just,
3: all I heard was, uh, and then he hit the ground, and I just, I ran into the woods. Because I didn't want to be, I do not want to be involved like I am now, I mean.
1: Who was there? That's Stephen's mom, Rhonda. It's just me and him. There are no lawyers here. Stephen's dad speaks up, says he's proud of Stephen. I'm
3: very proud of you, you know. It takes a lot of courage to do that
1: should have done it last night. I know but I was scared. Throughout the interview, Stephen keeps saying this, that he's scared. And his parents are treating him like he's a kid. When Stephen was in middle school, his parents found out he was smoking pot. They gave him a tough talk, and then they called the cops, tried to scare him straight. They really trusted law enforcement. It's just who they are. At the end of the tape, Stephen's mom, Rhonda, asks... Now what? It's so quiet, you can barely hear it. Steven says, now they're gonna arrest us.
3: I'm gonna stop the recording now. Just since we're done with the questioning here, we'll go through.
1: Here's what happened. Steven was arrested. Even though he was 17, he was charged with second-degree murder in adult criminal court. He never went home. Eventually, he and RJ went on trial together. The jury deliberated for six hours and found them both guilty. At Stephen and RJ's sentencing, the judge talked about the teenage mind. He said, the teenage brain is like a sports car. It's got a great engine, fantastic acceleration, but very poor brakes. And the night Tim Finucane was killed, the brakes were off. But the life sentence he gave Stephen was mandatory. It was right there in the sentencing guidelines. Back then, it didn't really matter what the brain science said.
3: At first, I never even imagined I was going to get this amount of time. Never even crossed my mind. I thought maybe at most I'll do a couple months, maybe a year or something like I didn't even imagine that I could do this amount of time.
2: So I'm back with Dwayne Betts. You'll remember he's been with me throughout this podcast as I try to understand these stories. And Dwayne, I just have so many questions about Steven's case, because first off, it seems to me like, I mean, the kid just ran away from what happened, right? He didn't commit
0: the actual murder. So why was life mandatory for him? It's one of the spaces in which the problems with adult criminal law get highlighted when the defendant is under the age of 18. And so in Pennsylvania, they have felony murder, also called second-degree murder— and it means that you didn't have to intend to commit the homicide if you were there. So if you were an accomplice and a person that you're with murdered somebody, you are held fully accountable for that murder as well. And it carries a mandatory life sentence. Mm. I mean, this cases in Pennsylvania where people were drunk in the, in the car while somebody committed a robbery and, and murdered somebody and they got a life sentence, a mandatory life sentence. And the real thing is that this raises questions about broader criminal law issues, and it's not just about Stephen being a juvenile, but we only think about how pernicious this law is because Stephen is a juvenile. So you've got this cascading effect. We've got these really inflexible laws for adults. We put kids into it,
2: and they're doubly inflexible as a consequence.
0: And we don't actually pretend that we imagine that the law is accounting for the behavior that occurred. Right. Right. When he's found guilty of felony murder, we don't actually believe that he intended to kill the victim. We know that he didn't intend to kill the victim and it's more clear more plain when you deal with a juvenile and and I think that's the tragedy uh, of this particular situation
2: up next, how science convinced the Supreme Court that there really is such a thing as too much punishment for kids. And what that decision might mean for Stephen Hall. To understand how brain science got to the Supreme Court, you need to meet one person. And this is not live, right? His name is Stephen Harper. Okay, because I sometimes go. <laughs> Mary Harris caught up with him recently.
1: Stephen Harper is a lawyer. He spent years defending juveniles. But watching his clients get longer and longer sentences, adult sentences, made him feel a little hopeless. So he decided to focus on a less frustrating specialty death penalty litigation.
4: I said, well, I'm not doing what I wanted to do, and what I want to do now is to try to save people's lives because I'm not saving children's
1: lives. And Stephen Harper's fight to use science to change the way we think about juvenile offenders started when those two worlds, juvenile defense and death penalty litigation, collided.
4: This is in 1999. I think it was November of
1: 1999. A friend at the American Bar Association sent him a list, five names. All men who had committed crimes as juveniles, and all of whom were scheduled to be executed over the next year.
4: And I remember being shocked by that and hadn't really thought about the juvenile death penalty.
1: The United States was one of just a few countries still doing this. The others included Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Iran. And TV news began to pick up on it.
4: That will make this a record-setting month for the United States. Three executions of juvenile offenders in one month. That's compared to 10 over the last decade.
1: Harper started lending a hand with individual cases. But four out of the five men on that list were executed anyway. So he decided he had to do more.
4: Initially, we were working on a case-by-case basis, and then we'd say, wait a minute, we're going to form an organization that is specifically aimed at ending the juvenile death penalty.
1: And all along, he's making this bigger case.
4: Our slogan really became simple, which was, kids are different. And they shouldn't be subject to the ultimate penalty because they're so
1: different. But he had this problem. How do you prove that kids are different? It seems like it's just common sense. And this is where the brain science comes in. The opinion of the court number 008452 Atkins against Virginia will be announced by Justice Stevens. Because as Stephen Harper is trying to make his case, this decision comes out from the Supreme Court. Atkins versus Virginia. It's about people with intellectual disabilities.
3: Those mentally retarded persons who meet the law's requirements for
1: criminal responsibility should be tried and punished when they commit crimes. Because of their disabilities in areas of reasoning, judgment, and control of their impulses, however, they do not
3: act with the level of moral culpability that characterizes the most serious adult criminal conduct.
1: Culpability. This is the magic word. The justices ruled that because people with mental disabilities have problems with judgment and impulse control, they can't be executed. They are less culpable. Stephen Harper heard this, and he thought, I know some other people who have problems with judgment and impulse control. And
4: in that decision, um, they actually talk about people with mental retardation as being children. And we jumped on that word Um, and said, wait a minute, if if the mentally retarded are children, then clearly children are children, and they should not be executed either.
1: And Harper realized the brain science could prove it. Kai, you remember that test I gave you at the top of the show with the blinking lights?
2: Yeah, the saccades or whatever they're called with the neuroscientist, Dr. Luna.
1: Yeah, so Harper recruited scientists just like Dr. Luna to help him translate all this heady neuroscience into legalese. So that became obvious that kids... Brains were different. And
4: I was taught when I was a lawyer by the judges that children's brains were fully developed when they were
1: 14 years old. This is how much the science has changed in just the last couple of decades. Harper dug in. He took two years off from his public defender job to recruit more scientists all over the country. He convinced them to release policy statements about the teenage brain, stuff he could use as evidence in court. And all the while, he's just waiting for the right case to pop up so he can bring his argument to Washington. Should a 16-year-old killer face the death penalty? The case comes from Missouri and involves a particularly brutal and senseless murder. Eventually, that case found him.
3: It started as a burglary at this home in Fenton, Missouri, south of St. Louis, early on a September morning in 1993.
1: A horrific murder committed by teenager Christopher Simmons.
0: They bound her, put her in her own vehicle, transport her to a bridge and threw her over alive.
4: It was a horrible case. And he was offered a plea of life, and his mother and other adults convinced him not to take it. His case was tried and he was sentenced to death.
1: But Simmons' lawyer appealed, and then appealed again, arguing that a teenager like Christopher Simmons should not be executed because he was just as impulsive as someone with intellectual disabilities. In 2004, Simmons' case headed to the Supreme Court.
0: Well, your argument now in number 03633, Donald Roper versus Christopher Simmons.
1: Stephen Harper helped prepare Simmons' lawyer for this moment. And in the oral argument, the justices and Seth Waxman, that's the lawyer representing Christopher Simmons, mentioned the term science or scientific 29 times. More than they mentioned the name of Christopher Simmons himself, With just a few minutes left, Justice Scalia asks, does it really matter that teenagers change?
4: Everybody changes, but that doesn't justify uh, 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 eliminating the the proper punishments that society has determined. I think with respect, Justice Scalia... Waxman jumps in and
1: pivots right back to the science.
4: Science has confirmed what we intuitively know, which is that when the jury gets around to evaluating what the character was that manifested that horrible crime.
1: And this is the crux of his argument.
4: They can't tell whether the crime that occurred two years ago or two weeks ago was the manifestation of an enduring character or transient uh, psychosocial traits that rage in adolescence.
1: He's saying this, that all the things that could lead a teenager to commit a crime— The brain science says they could be part of their inherent teenagerness. So young people are less culpable, even when they do something awful. When the Supreme Court made their decision, one of the first people Seth Waxman told was Stephen Harper.
4: About 20 minutes after he got the opinion emailed to him from the Supreme Court, he emailed me with nothing but exclamation points. Uh, So I, I knew that we had won, and so it was a
1: spectacular moment. So juveniles couldn't be executed anymore. Right. And this case became the first of a whole series of cases that changed how we treat juvenile offenders, including that guy I introduced you to at the top of the show, Stephen Hall.
2: The guy who got the life sentence in Pennsylvania.
1: Right. After the Supreme Court made it unconstitutional to execute juveniles, they started winding back other harsh sentences. First, they decided juveniles could only be sentenced to life if they committed murder. And then a couple years later, they made it unconstitutional to give mandatory life sentences, no matter what your crime. And then they made that decision retroactive. Retroactive. Right. So if a juvenile offender is serving a mandatory life sentence already the way Stephen is, they are eligible to be resentenced. Some of these people, they're getting out of prison on the spot. Stephen Hall told me he was waiting for this.
3: A lot of people, they get arrested and they come up here, they just sit back. They don't even try and get out. They just do their time but I just couldn't do that, so I went to the law library pretty much almost every day for a couple of years straight fighting my case until finally the juvenile lifer stuff came out.
1: How, how did you hear about the juvenile lifer stuff?
3: There was probably about 15 of us in this jail, so everybody was just, like, keeping tabs on it. Somebody heard it through a C-SPAN, and it, the news just spread rapidly.
1: Stephen would be appearing in front of the same judge who sentenced him the first time around. The one who said the teenage brain was like a sports car. And Stephen said he was scared as hell.
3: Definitely nervous. Whatever I get, it's just what it's gonna be. And if I get something crazy like forty years to life or something, I can appeal that and say it's fano facto a life sentence, even though it's not a life sentence, it's pretty much making me spend the rest of my life in prison.
1: It's gonna change everybody. The day before the hearing, I asked Stephen's mom Rhonda how she hoped the judge would rule. I mean, yes, we all know that it's going to be something different than life, but, you know, nobody knows. Rhonda still lives about a half-hour drive from the crime scene, in a small town that has more churches than traffic lights. When we spoke, she was surrounded by family—her mother, her sister, Stephen's dad—and almost everyone was planning to stay the night in her tiny two-bedroom house they were trying to keep her calm. Eventually, Rhonda told me she was hoping the judge would let Stephen out after just six more years. Steven's dad was more direct.
3: I'm hoping he gets out tomorrow. I really do. So we can love him just like we love him our whole life. I'm hoping he, uh, the judge leans on it a little bit and helps him out so he can get his life started.
1: Stephen was set to appear in the Elk County Courthouse at 9 a.m. the next morning. It was a gorgeous day, warm, late April sun. There were birds singing. It felt hopeful.
2: Good morning. Where do you need to go?
1: At the security checkpoint, family members were trickling in one by one. Stephen's hearing was the main event. There's just one judge here, one courtroom.
2: So, uh, no weapons on anybody? No. no pocket knives, cigarette lighters, no mace, like no cameras, no. Uh, what did you
1: what, what did you go out to get? Oh, Mints for mom, for my mother. Stephen's aunts ran in and out a couple of times. Yeah, because she gets She's really nervous, nervous. <laughs> and settles her stomach. Yeah. yeah. Everyone here was worried. Been a long road, and um, we're just really hoping for a good outcome. I think so. So, just said a prayer this morning and. Came to the courthouse. <laughs> yeah, this is just what we do. So,
2: no electronic devices of any kind. No cell phones.
1: The guard made me leave my equipment in a locker out front. You can't take it upstairs. I can't take it upstairs.
2: No, no. Okay. Nothing like that on the second floor. Okay.
1: And I went upstairs to the courtroom to wait. I sat on the victim's side, hoping to meet Tim Finucane's family but the only people in my row were a couple of high schoolers shadowing the district attorney. Later on, I drove out to the crime scene where the families built a small memorial to Tim Finucane. It's where his ashes are scattered. His brother Mike lives in the house now, but he said he didn't want to come here because he felt he'd said his piece at trial. Back in the courtroom, I watched as two rows filled up with Stephen's family and friends, 18 people total. Stephen himself was up front, his hands and legs shackled together in an orange jumpsuit. He started losing his hair in prison, and he ran his hands over his close-cropped head as he waited for the judge to arrive. Around 10 o'clock, the prosecutor began making his case. He acknowledged that Stephen may not have known what he was getting himself into the night Tim Finucane died, but urged the judge to think about the victim. He said, Finucane will never have the benefit of waking up on a spring morning, morning like this one, hearing the birds, hearing the woods wake up. He wanted Stephen's sentence to reflect that. Then, Stephen's lawyer began calling witnesses. One of the first was 25-year-old Ashley Eck. She's a middle school math teacher now, but she's known Stephen since childhood. People grow up, she said. She told the judge Stephen has a huge support system that if he were to get out, we'd all be there for him. Even though Steven's incarcerated, she said, he's still my best friend. And that's when I noticed most of the people on Stephen's side of the courtroom, including Stephen himself, had started to cry. When court let out, Stephen's relatives streamed outside. I feel like everyone needs a smoke after that. Yeah. Yes, I do. Most of them lit cigarettes, including Stephen's grandmother, June. You look pretty disappointed. I was hoping for it a lot shorter, but I don't know. Stephen was sentenced to 20 to 50 years in prison. So in 11 more years, he'll be eligible for parole. Better than life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely better than life. we were trying to figure out how old we'd be when he got out. I'll be in my late 70s. Stephen's mom, Rhonda, couldn't decide whether she was relieved or frustrated. I'm just trying to figure out how you feel after a moment like that because it's like there's so much buildup and then it's like... I know, I felt like he was drawing it out. I'm like, just tell us already. Okay, it's not what I wanted, but I'll take it. Ashley, that childhood friend who testified, she seems happy. When one of Stephen's cousins says she wishes Stephen were getting out sooner, Ashley jumps in. Yeah, but he also knows what he did and that's like, what, 11 11 more years. That's doable. We can do that. The guards kept me away from Stephen himself. But as I was walking out of the courtroom, wondering how all these people felt about another decade of prison visits, I overheard Stephen say to his lawyer, I deserve it. I deserve it. So that's what's happening
2: with Stephen. But Mary, what about beyond him? What about around the country? How
1: is this playing out? So it's really, really uneven across the country. Um, It really depends on your judge. It depends on your crime. If you just look at Pennsylvania, which is where Stephen was, they had Mm -hmm. about 500 juvenile lifers and it's taken a lot of time to resentence them they estimate it's going to take at least another 2 or 3 years to get through them and then in steven's prison they've resentenced a number of these juvenile lifers but only one of them has gotten out on the spot and he had already been in for 40 years so this isn't really a get out of jail free card mm.
2: what i keep thinking about is what about
1: rj the guy who actually committed the murder does does he get this resentencing as well So the answer to that is no, because he had just turned 18 when he committed this murder. So he was an adult. He doesn't get access to this resentencing. It really shows that even though the science says one thing, our brains don't mature until we're in our 20s, how that gets interpreted by the law is really different. That doesn't seem fair to me. Yeah, and the thing to remember about cases like Steven's is there are just a few thousand people like him. They're just people who got mandatory life sentences. A teenager can still get a life sentence. Mm. And people who are being resentenced, people like Stephen, some of them are getting those life sentences over again. So this is a really small incremental change. It's a big deal for people like Steven, But the science alone can't shift the culture around how we treat juvenile offenders.
2: Coming up, we meet a girl in Walla Walla, Washington, who just won't go to school. Seems like that should be a concern for her parents, or maybe for a school social worker. But in Washington State, it actually gets her sent to detention.
0: I felt
1: dumb that I went to juvie. I I think it's pretty stupid that they take you to court for not going to school. It's just dumb.
2: That's next on Caught.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, felt like you learned something, go listen to all the other episodes of Caught wherever you get your podcasts. The reporting the team did is simply phenomenal. And stay tuned for what's next from Only Human. Talk to you soon.
2: Caught is a production of WNYC Studios and the narrative unit of WNYC News. This episode was reported by Mary Harris. We had additional reporting from Sophia Palizakar and Paige Cowett, with research assistance from Caitlin Pierce. Dwayne Betts is a consultant on the podcast. Casey Means is our technical director with engineering help from Matt Boynton. Hannes Brown is our composer, and students Taja Graves-Parker, Alberto Lugo, and Sean Gary from Building Beats provided additional music. Our team of talented producers includes Rebecca Carroll, Jessica Miller, Courtney Stein, and Patricia Willens. Michelle Harris is our fact checker. Kari Pitkin is our senior producer. Karen Frillman is our executive producer. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Caught is supported in part by the Anne Levy Fund, the Margaret Newbart Foundation, the John and Gwynne Smart Family Foundation, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.